An anthology about the bad, the short-lived, and the forgotten shows and events in television history. This is It Was a Thing on TV. I give you Super Train! Episode 413, submission number 023, Buffalo Bill. Buffalo Bill aired on the NBC television network from June 1st of 1983 to March 29th of 1984, over two seasons, totaling 26 episodes, one of which went unaired. So that's 10 more than Uncle Crack's Black, Hudson Brothers Razzle Dazzle Show, Schooled, J.J. Starbuck, a number of varied episodes of Salvage One, and infinitely many other shows. And Greg, if you have it handy... This is actually the first entry we have that's premiered in June of 1983. So this falls in between Bob Rooney Day on Late Night with David Letterman and We Got It Made, which premiered on September 8th. But overall, for 1983, we must have covered... Two dozen shows. I mean, obviously, Manimal, Mr. Smith. We covered Hitman. We covered Just Men. We covered... Did we cover Go at one point? Yes, we did. Yeah. Yep. Okay, we did Go. Again, the list goes on forever and ever and ever. It's, I believe, the 30th subject that originates in 1983, not the show itself. Uh, okay, so that means, like, for the 1983 uh, January 3rd shows... Hitman and, and Just Men, that would count as one entry. But still, 413 episodes, 30 of them have been about the year 1983. You forgot the most important show on NBC from 1983. The match game Hollywood Squares Hour. No, after last week, I think Mr. Smith takes the title. That was a good show. And it had Bobo as himself. And had Bobo hitting on Miss Veronica, the weather orangutan. Just remember, Bobo sucked her lollipop. Theme music, please! We're here this week, and as I said last week, we're doing sort of the spiritual successor to Suckapalooza last year. We're doing what I affectionately call Dabney Colmania. We're talking about Dabney Coleman, really one of the great actors from the 80s. 
just didn't have any good shows, to be honest. In case you don't know, Dabney Coleman, probably best known for being the boss on 9 to 5. He was also in Tootsie. He was in one of my favorite movies as a kid, Cloak and Dagger. And he tried taking that success to television, and he had marginal success. He was on 24 episodes of Boardwalk Empire, 67 episodes of The Guardian. He was on 14 episodes of Recess as the principal. I didn't watch Recess, so that's a little new to me. Oh, another show I remember, and you got to think we're going to cover this one day, Madman of the People. I remember that show. And he also played Merle Jeter on 148 episodes of Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, and appeared on a couple of episodes of Fernwood Tonight, and appeared on 130 episodes of Fernwood Forever. So he's deeply entrenched in that Fernwood Tonight, Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman universe. But we're not here to talk about Fernwood Forever, Fernwood Tonight, Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, Madman of the People. We're here to talk about the first TV show that he had a starring role on that really taking a look at all the reviews I saw, everybody said this should be a hit. But obviously, as I said earlier, 26 episodes says everything but a hit. We'll get into the hows and whys later. But briefly, what this was about was uh, Dabney Coleman played Buffalo Bill Bittinger, he was an egotistical talk show host on WBFL, a small TV station in Buffalo, New York. See, his name is Bill Bittinger. He's in Buffalo, New York. We get Buffalo Bill. Clever. And really, people who worked with him did not like Bill's qualities. Again, he had uh, a bit of an ego, to say the least. He was sort of harsh around uh, his staff. So maybe made a little bit of a uncomfortable workplace, if you will. And he actually aspired for bigger things. That was his goal. Well, I think that's like every TV personality's goal is to move up in the food chain. Yeah, you like being in Buffalo, but you know what? It would be better if you're in Chicago. Or it would be better if you're in even, let's say, a Toronto, a big metropolitan city, which is not that far from Buffalo. So yeah, Bill's ego uh, may get the best of him and makes life miserable for everybody he works with, particularly his manager at the station, Carl Shubb, who's constantly dodging lawsuits based on Bill's behavior. The one person that Bill is unable to bully is his director and on-and-off lover, Jojo White. Ooh. So yeah, he wants to go to the big leagues, and maybe it's not best if you, like, trample all over your co-workers in the process. And what happens when he does trample all over his co-workers? Wacky shenanigans happen. There you go, Greg. There's the new hilarity ensues. Wacky shenanigans happen. Good. I knew you'd like me to use that. And as I said earlier, the critics actually raised Buffalo Bill. And I have an article from the day Buffalo Bill premiered, and this is from William Hickey. It's called Buffalo Bill Rides the Range of Top Comedy. 
NBC, a network striving to improve its primetime comedy lineup, is making a solid move with a splendidly humorous production called Buffalo Bill. Buffalo Bill has Dabney Coleman as a slightly dim-witted but totally ambitious television talk show host in Buffalo, New York. The character he plays, Bill Bittinger, is outrageous, obnoxious, deceitful, and thoroughly insecure. He is also highly amusing and notably endearing in his transparency. Sades of Merle Jeter in Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. Again, that's the character that Dabney Coleman played in Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. Coleman has done it again. That is, he has taken a character with little redeeming social value and somehow made him an enjoyable buffoon, a person to be reckoned with in the network television primetime scheme of things. With apologies to Buffalo, Bittinger is the proverbial big fish in a small pond and unhappy about it. While he praises the city at every possible opportunity, all the while he's plotting to get to the Big Apple and the big time. As the storyline goes, Bittinger, like many other TV talk show hosts, will do anything to boost his ratings. Also, according to the storyline, the more outrageously he behaves, the more the citizens of Buffalo tune him in, thereby sending his ratings heading for the stratosphere. It's a good thing that they do, for his big boss, the owner of the station, can't stand him. Being a practical man, however, the proprietor of the mythical WBFL-TV tolerates Bittinger's presence because high ratings translates to big profits. Every farce needs a touch of realism to make it play. There's more to this, but I'm not going to give you like all 20, 30 paragraphs. It's actually quite a long article. But that's the general gist of it is Bill Bittinger loves Buffalo, doesn't want to stay in Buffalo, wants to go to New York. And basically, he's not making anybody stop him. He's going to irritate everybody he can. We talked about Dabney Coleman already. We don't need to get further into his resume. So we'll talk about the other people in this series. Playing his off-and-on girlfriend that we mentioned earlier, JoJo White, is Joanna Cassidy. And we mentioned her because I believe we talked about her in The Cool Kids. She was a guest star on that. Yes, we did. I can't believe that's the only thing we talked about her in would be that. Yeah. She's had like a storied career. She was in like Blade Runner. She was in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. You're right about that. I'm just surprised that the only thing we might have talked about her in was the cool kids. Playing the station manager, Carl Shubb. This is another one of those cases. We talked about it in the past, uh, the butterfly effect where, you know, if something happened, that TV history might be changed forever. If Buffalo Bill actually lasted more than a year, I think we'd have some changes uh, with a certain TV show, one that's beloved to me. Playing Carl Shubb, the manager of the TV station, is Max Wright. Willie Tanner. Oh, I thought we were about to talk about Misfits of Science, because we did talk about him in Misfits of Science. You're right, we did. Now I wonder if Buffalo Bill lasted longer, how does that affect Misfits of Science? Again, stepping on the butterfly, changing time forever. But no, seriously, I know him best, and probably everybody listening to this knows him best as Willie Tanner on ALF. And and if you get Plex, there's a 24-7 ALF channel. Not just 24-7 ALF, 
but you also get Alf Tales and you get Alf the Animated Series. You get all the Alf outside of Project Alf. But also, Alf is on the Maximum Effort channel on Freebie. Yeah, but it only airs like two times a day from what I've seen. Yeah, but it's still airing on Maximum Effort. It's still airing on Maximum Effort, and we've talked about how much we love Maximum Effort. Playing Woody, I don't have a role for him necessarily. I'm guessing he works at the station, maybe as a friend of Buffalo Bill's, is John Fiedler. And actually looking at his face, we've talked about him. Where people might know him from is he voiced Piglet in The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh. He was Piglet's voice. Oh. But also, he was juror number two in one of my favorite movies of all time, 12 Angry Men. But again, you look at the face and you know you've seen him. And again, we've talked about him because I've seen his IMDb in the past. And also, he didn't just voice Piglet in 1977. He voiced Piglet up till 2005. Ooh. Who's Heffalump movie? Oh, I remember that. Who's Heffalump movie? You would have been 20 at the time. What were you doing watching Pooh's Heffalump movie? I worked at Blockbuster then. Okay, okay. Valid point. Valid point. <laughs> Could just see 20-year-old Greg sitting in front of the TV. I want to see the Heffalump movie again. While working at Blockbuster. It's like, oh, we don't have anything better. I'll just go in the break room and watch Pooh's Heffalump movie. I'm taking a look at Pooh's Heffalump movie. If I'm not mistaken came out shortly before his death. And just taking a look, again, I said we've talked about him in the past. I see Love, Sydney. I see Flying High. There's a number of shows we talked about him uh, in the past. I think we talked about him in something more recent. I'm not going to sit here looking for it. But yeah, again, known quantity, not with us any longer, unfortunately. Playing Wendy Killian, who is a production assistant, she'd go on to bigger things after this. This did not define her career in any way. You may have heard of her. Gina Davis. I'm not even going to say anything because if you don't know who Gina Davis is, go watch a movie. Go watch Thelma and Louise. A League of Their Own. So many movies. Hey, you could go watch Beetlejuice. You can go ask Lauren Bobin how great watching Beetlejuice is. Good night, everybody. No, no, no. Greg, why did you? You set up that joke, and I just crushed it right over the plate. Well, no, I'm going to go for the Grand Slam, because apparently Lauren Bobert was trying to feel her partner's Beatles juice. Good night, everybody. Oh, now you're silent. Okay. We're not going to talk about her companion. We're not going to talk about her, period, please. Playing New Dell Springs in this series, a podcast favorite. And again, another case of what if this actually lasted longer than a year? Because this person probably wouldn't get the role I think he's best known for. Talking about Charles Robinson. Oh, and speaking of Lauren Bobert, what was that she was holding? That's a penis. Thank you. I couldn't tell from this angle. And last but not least, in terms of regular actors, another case where, you know, if this lasted like five seasons, this guy wouldn't have gotten his role of a lifetime. 
in the role of Tony, don't have the last name, unfortunately, is Meshach Taylor. That's right. If this lasted longer than one year, he would have never been in the 1987 cinematic masterpiece, Mannequin. Oh, And Designing Women, just saying. And to tell the truth, let's just complete the trifecta there. By the way, how'd you like the fact that they snuck in that one Burger King commercial with Elizabeth Shue and Andrew McCarthy in the Mr. Smith break? Wonderful. The entire Mr. Smith episode was just absolutely brilliant. Did we mention the creators of this show? I was actually going to get to that because these are people that we've talked about often. This is, I think, at least the third show we've talked about them on, and I'm sure there's more. Who we're talking about are Tom Patchett, Jay Tarsus, and Bernie Burlstein. I think Bernie Burlstein is the true legend of the three, not to minimize what Jay Tarsus and Tom Patchett have done. I just think he's the bigger name, Bernie Burlstein. But Jay Tarsus, again, I think this is the third episode we've talked about him on, at least the third because we definitely talked about him on Open All Night. And we definitely talked about him on The Duck Factory, which would have also been another 1984 show. So again, a, a quality name. And spoiler, we're going to talk about him the next episode too. So that's going to be four episodes where we've talked about him. And Tom Patchett, I do believe, is the partner of, uh, of Jay Tarsus in terms of production, creation, whatnot. I remember his name on Open All Night for sure. Tom Patches. So we've talked about him as well. And with that, let's talk about some episodes. Starting with the pilot. When his best friend Pete Killian of 60 Minutes dies, Bill Bittinger, the egocentric talk show host of the high-rated local show Buffalo Bill, immediately applies to 60 Minutes as a replacement news anchor. While Bill makes absurd pledges to Dan Thornwell, it is obvious to anyone but Bill that director Jojo White and the CBS Network executive Dan Thornwell are attracted. Bill later blunders into Joanna's apartment, picking up where he thinks he left off, even though Joanna has changed the lock on her door and told him to not drop by without calling first. Even when Thornwell appears at the door for their date, it takes Bill a few minutes to realize that Joanna and Dan are on a prearranged date, though he still tries to turn it to his advantage. After turning down an apparent contract offer from Carl, he receives a phone call from CBS. When he tells the live audience that he is elected to stay in Buffalo for his talk show, Jojo opines the crew that Bill obviously was not offered 60 minutes. Bill refuses an order from Carl to hire a new research assistant until he meets and subsequently hires the late Pete Killian's beautiful and intelligent daughter, Wendy. Maybe it's just me. Seems kind of weird that they'd mention not just another network on this show, but another show on that network. You know, I know that NBC didn't have much going for it necessarily in the news department in 1983. I mean, they could have used Today. They could have used First Camera, even though that's probably a step or two down. But I just find it weird that they used uh, the name CBS and used 60 Minutes, unless this was originally pitched to CBS. We do have a name in this episode playing Dr. Murphy, the professor himself. 
from Gilligan's Island, Russell Johnson. Got another name in this episode, too. Somebody we talked about already. Playing Dan Thornwell, Jason of Star Command himself, Craig Littler. This takes us to episode two. Buffalo Beat. After his bad interview with female chef Teresa Gallardo, Bill is given a co-host, prompting him to be worried about his popularity. Much to his relief, actress and model Tamara Brooks has stage fright, panicking. Bill is fearful for his life when his African-American makeup artist, Nudell, confronts him over Bill's comments about him. Nudell being Charles Robinson, as we mentioned earlier. couple names in this episode. Playing the lovely Tamara Brooks, the equally lovely Simone Griffith. Annie from Death Race 2000. And playing the chef, Teresa Gallardo, Elsa Raven. Ida Strauss from Titanic played a role on Amen as the uh, housekeeper to uh, Deacon Fry, Sh- Sherman Hemsley. Make sure he's all prim and proper for the Boom Boom Room. Episode 3, Woody Quits. After enduring insults from Bill for three years, Woody quits as a stage manager and demands an apology, prompting Bill to hire Nudell as his replacement. Nudell turns out to be an incompetent stage manager. Woody, who also works for a company that manages properties, threatens to evict Bill out of the apartment. In the station's cafeteria, Bill hurts Woody by pushing his chair onto him, but then apologizes. Woody takes it as an apology for Bill's past demeanor toward him. That will take us to episode four, Buffalo Bill and the Movies. During his interview with actress Lauren Stockton, Bill calls Joan Seeger, the producer of the movie My Father's Blood, featuring Lauren, for an audition to be a character's father. After Bill loses the part, he rehearses a scene with a firefighter chief at the talk show to win his audience's esteem. Unfortunately, the rehearsed scene prompts the audience to praise the chief's acting abilities, leaving Bill disappointed. Even Woody thinks that Bill stunk and overacted. I don't want to say I'm surprised, but Buffalo Bill comes across as a bit of a ham, as one who would overact. Playing Joan Seeger, the director of the film that Lauren Stockton is in, is a lady by the name of Lou Leonard, who was also in an episode of Amen, but was on 10 episodes as Gertrude Riley of Jake and the Fat Man. The original, not the prequel. Did she get asked by the Fat Man about what was in the cheese Danish? No, I don't think she got asked about the cheese Danish and what was in it. Sorry, Greg. Lou Leonard, looking at her, I remember where I know her from. She was on the season three premiere episode of Married with Children, where she played like the evil librarian, Mrs. DeGroot. Al hated her. And Al hated her even more because Al had a book from like fifth grade that he didn't return. And there were like $2,000 in late fines accrued to it. And so he's like, well, I returned the book. Okay, let's you know go to the shelf then and take a look at it. And Al and her go to the bookshelf, and he's like, is that a duck? And trying to get her attention so he could slip the book back in there. And then finally, he, <laughs> uh, 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 
he pushes this mobile ladder into her. She sort of stumbles over and he puts the book in and says, oh, look, it's been here all along. The little train that could. And Al got busted because they had a video camera there and the video went all across Chicago news and they called him like the biggest bum in Chicago. Oh, Al. Could it be that you don't have the $2,000? Could it be that I was correct when I made an educated guess that you would fail in life? Could it be that the nails that hold your chair together are from the planet Krypton? <laughs> oh, look, it's after 12. That's another 20 cents you owe us. Well, it just so happens that I returned that book years ago. I'd remember if you did. You weren't here. I'm always here. Not that day. I believe that was the day of the big cake heist. <laughs> you were rounded up for questioning. Perhaps a policeman's rubber hose can get to the truth. Wait, I'll just go to the shelves and get that book and prove it to you. We'll both go. So, Mr. Bundy, what do you do for a living, presuming you're not still in high school? <laughs> Librarian hitman. I thought so. Uh, let's see, I, I know I put it here somewhere. Uh, is that a duck? The book, Bundy, the book. <laughs> Yeah, uh, maybe it could be... Uh... Oh, here it is! The little engine that could! Boy, this brings back a lot of memories. You planted that in there. Prove it, DeGroote. <laughs> a loser? I think not. <laughs> So I paid a little fine. I apologized. That was it. Oh, see, Al, you were worried over nothing. Yep, you're right. Kids, let this be a lesson. You can't do wrongdoing right. <laughs> On the darker side of the news, surveillance cameras in the Oakwood Library caught the man with the most overdue book in the city <laughs> as he sneaked the little engine that could back on the shelves to avoid paying the fine. Watch carefully in slow motion as he distracts almost killed the librarian. Then slips the book back on the shelf. So take a good look at this man. He's been identified as Chicago's own Al Bundy. In this reporter's opinion, a true piece of human garbage. Dad, let me try something out on you. How does this sound? Bud Smith. <laughs> yeah, Mom, we were watching. Didn't he look good? <laughs> well, Daddy, this may be the most embarrassing thing that has ever happened to this family. I mean, we've been training for something like this all our lives, but you're never really ready. Mrs. DeGroote, I love it. Did you say there was another name in this episode? Yeah, uh, playing Lawrence Stockton, the actress, is Deborah Geffner, an actress, singer, dancer, writer, director, filmmaker, coach, animal lover, and mom, who was in All That Jazz in 1979. So she and Bob Fosse, they get along just fine. Thank you very much. Episode 5, Mrs. Buffalo Bill? After he was turned down by women and friends for dinner, 
Bill sneaks into JoJo's house by a window out of desperation, surprising her after a disastrous date with Nick. After seven months of flirting with and dating her, Bill proposes marriage to JoJo and sleeps with her, but then he has second thoughts. To his relief, JoJo refuses to marry him, only to have her change her mind to please him. Becoming indecisive, JoJo says tails for refusal and flips a coin that shows tails, setting both free from marriage. We have a name who wrote this episode. Meryl Marco. Legend from Late Night with David Letterman. And I believe we talked about Meryl Marco going back again to open all night. Yeah, because I believe she was the creator and executive producer of the show. So again, somebody that Jay Tarsus and Tom Patchett may have a lot of faith in. We're going to move on to episode six called Wilkinson's Sword. After his talk show, Buffalo Bill is canceled in favor of mash reruns. Bill reluctantly takes Woody's job offer to work at the car dealer, Woody's Porsche and Audi. Using the name Rudy, he is belligerent to customers and ruins car parts. JoJo demands that the station manager, Carl, bring the show back. Carl turns to Mr. Wilkinson, who controls the programming of the station. Wilkinson lets Carl decide, and though he is somewhat hostile to Bill, Carl reluctantly resurrects Bill's show and transfers MASH to another channel, where it will compete against Bill's show. And I do see a couple of names in this episode. I don't have a character name for this first person, but we've talked about this person enough. Maybe making a low-key Hall of Fame case. Jim McCrell. Nothing about Celebrity Sweepstakes. Nothing about uh, the Shaggy Dog, Return of the Shaggy Dog. Nothing needs oh, yeah. to be said. It's Jim McCrell. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. I just thought Greg would get his uh, Return of the Shaggy Dog reference in there. Well, you already did that for me. You're welcome. Going on to Episode 7 called Guess Who's Coming to Buffalo? Bill's estranged daughter, Melanie, divorces her cheating husband, Steve, and wants attention from her father. Annoyed by her constant presence, Bill ends up berating her in front of everyone at the TV station. He can't ignore her at his apartment when she uses a noisy purifier, impacting his home life. In response, Melanie declares to the crew that she is moving to Fresno, California. Nevertheless, to Bill's chagrin, Melanie accepts a job offer at the station to join the crew. Buffalo Bill plans to depict Eddie, Crazy Eddie Finsick's stunts at Niagara Falls with his barrel. So, no, Greg, not the Crazy Eddie from the commercials back in the 80s who's insane. Sorry. Oh, darn. Crazy Eddie, he's insane! I remember no, those ads. No, you, you're thinking, you got Crazy Eddie confused with Crazy Gideon. No, no, no. There's a Crazy Eddie back in the oh, day. Yeah, it's true in New York. Oh, you're right. I have Crazy Eddie, Crazy Gideon confused. I'm sorry. Easy mistake to make. No, no. C crazy Eddie was crazy. He he was going insane. Crazy Gideon, he just like threw technology to the ground, gave no craps about it. Yeah. Said to hurry before he changes his mind about these deals. Yeah, he wasn't insane. He said, hurry before I change my mind. And they carried him off in a straight jacket. Melanie Wayne, the estranged daughter, is played semi-regularly in this series by Pippa Pearthree, who was in multiple shows on multiple episodes, among which were Day by Day, playing the role of Martha, 
and trial judge Esther Morrow on six episodes of Law and Order. Another person in this episode that does not have a character name is Earl Pomerantz, not known as an actor, but known as a writer. Wrote 96 episodes of Major Dad, which must be darn near every episode, and not just written by, but was also the creator of Major Dad. He also wrote four episodes of Cheers. And I think we've talked about this quite a few times in the last month or two. Best of the West. Nine episodes of Taxi. Nine episodes of Phyllis. Needless to say, he's done a lot. A lot of writing, not a lot of acting. Episode eight is called Below the Belt. Melanie, who becomes well-liked by the crew, feels neglected by Bill. When she threatens to move into New Dell's place, Bill becomes worried. During the talk show, Melanie outs herself as Bill's estranged daughter, confronts him over issues like leaving his ex-wife and daughter behind, and is able to reconcile with him. Crazy Eddie ends up dead during a stunt at Niagara Falls, prompting Bill to interview his widowed wife. We told you not to do anything stupid at Niagara Falls. Nothing good ever happens there. People get married. Da-dum-dum. Why, yes, I am single. Why do you ask? Episode 9 is entitled Ratings. Bill hears from Carl that the Nielsen ratings dropped. Bill tries to find fault with the staff, but he ends up blaming himself for losing touch with other people. After going to JoJo for comfort at night, he goes to the bus station, meets the janitor Charles, who is an avid viewer of Buffalo Bill, and signs an autograph for him. Bill is punched by the homeless man for refusing to give him a quarter, leaving Bill unconscious. The following day, Woody wakes him up and carries him to the station. Bill realizes that he lost his wallet. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. And playing Holly Pringle in this episode. Julie Brown. Not talking about downtown Julie Brown. We're talking about Earth Girls Are Easy Julie Brown. We're talking about the first champ on few Julie Brown. Al Fan played the homeless man in this episode. Charles Williams was known primarily as an early to mid-80s voice actor, but you've seen him on six episodes of Home Improvement, two episodes of Martin, and 16 episodes of something called Bodies of Evidence. And also, he was Lou on Stop or My Mom Will Shoot. Episode 10 is called True Love. Bill is attracted to Melanie's new friend, Angela Katumi, and wants her to play a flute on the talk show, but Carl refuses. When Bill goes against his orders, Carl interrupts the broadcast without regret. Angela breaks up with Bill, especially for his selfishness, after which Bill vengefully breaks everything in Carl's office. Episode 11 is called The Fan. Bill is stalked by the frequent female caller Clara, who claims him as her baby's father. What? When she trespasses the station with fake janitor clothes and walks onto the talk show, Bill shows empathy for Clara, moving the audience and the crew. However, when Carl enters the broadcast booth and is swarmed by bees, he assumes it is the fault of Clara as Alexander Haig, a bee expert who was supposed to be the talk show's guest. Not the bees! Not the bees! <gasps> this takes us to episode 12, which is the unaired episode called Hackles. Bill insults Dr. Solomon, the toxic waste expert, at the talk show and 
interrupts the interview by bringing in the Burt Reynolds lookalike. Wendy confronts Bill, encouraged by Carl and Jojo, and Bill shows sympathy to her, prompting her to reconcile. The following day, Bill changes Wendy's prepared questions for another guest against her will, but Wendy is reluctant to confront him. So that's the end of season one. Now, obviously, this is a critic favorite. We'll take a look at some ratings later on to see if it was a fan favorite. Obviously, it merited a second season. The show didn't immediately start season two in fall of 1983. The first episode of season two actually aired on December 22nd of 1983. So this is like three months after the fall season premiered. And we should note that the first season did run till late August. So yeah, makes sense. Give it a little hiatus, use it as a mid-season replacement or something to fill a slot. And actually, given that date, December 22nd of 1983, I don't think it aired on Friday nights, but I'm just saying, might this have replaced Mr. Smith? Don't answer that. We'll talk about that later. We'll start with the first episode, which is called Hit the Road, Nudel. Having enough of makeup artist Nudel's patronization on Bill's ego, Bill tells Carl to fire Nudel. Fearing discrimination lawsuits and the NAACP, Bill hires Nudel back. Before doing so, Bill confronts him about Nudel's attitude and tells him Bill's past story about taking a ride without his pants in a taxi driven by an African-American man. Nudel accepts taking his job back only to demand sharing Bill's dressing room, which he reluctantly accepts. Big name in R&B in this episode. Playing herself, Little Esther Phillips. Hit the top 10 in 1962 with Release Me. And she died less than a year after this episode was recorded. August of 1984. Moving on to episode 2 of season 2, Jerry Lewis Week. Kurt stands up to Bill as the studio does a tribute to Jerry Lewis. And actually about this episode, TV Guide in 1997 ranked this episode on its list of 100 greatest episodes of all time. Give some respect, guys. I don't want to say the number, but I have to. It was episode 69. Nice! What did I say about respect? I gave you guys one simple rule. I said, be respectful, which sort of implied don't say it, and you said it anyhow. Are you proud of yourself? Yes. But, Mike, we have somebody playing uncredited, a Jerry Lewis impersonator. I see seven different Jerry Lewis impersonators, but I see the one that you're talking about who is uncredited. The one, the only, the legendary Jim Carrey. And please let us remember that less than a year from now, even a couple months from this point, he'd be in The Duck Factory. Again, a Jay Tarsus show. I think he would already have been on Carson at this point, right? Oh my gosh, you're asking the wrong person. I gotta Google that. But I'm just saying, he would have been on the Duck Factory literally months after this, and again, that was a Jay Tarsus show, so not really a surprise that uh, he was on this. So YouTube says Jim Carrey's debut on Carson was November 24th of 83. And another big name, playing Staunton McMuller, is James Cromwell. 
I think all we need to say is babe. That'll do, pig. And another credit for a show I absolutely loved, which I think went downhill as time went on, but I loved it nonetheless, at least the first two and a half, three seasons. He played Natalie Z's father on The Detour. You guys didn't watch The Detour on TBS? I watched The Detour on TBS. I watched it for Jason Jones. Well, Jason Jones, yeah, Jason Jones and Natalie Z, absolutely. But that was such a hilarious show the first two seasons. Then it sort of went sideways the third season, and then it went just totally off the chain the last season. And we're never going to cover it because I love that show so much, at least the first two seasons. No. Did we also mention Keone Young as a Jerry Lewis impersonator? I think you just did. Yep. So we have Jim Carrey, Keone Young, and five other people. And for the people at home who don't know who Keone Young is, could you please fill in the gap there? A voice actor, uh, that Asian guy from that thing. I believe we talked about him on Tales of the Gold Monkey, but definitely in Samurai Jack and currently on Gremlins Secret of the Mogwai. Oh, I didn't even know that was airing now. We have talked about him in the past before because he was on an episode of Grady. Remember when we entered the Sanford verse? But also, he was on an episode of I'm a Big Girl Now. And he was on an episode of The Duck Factory. And an episode of E slash R. Not E dash R, Greg. Don't get me started. E slash R. And Lady Blue. Oh, that's great. So that's five right there. Just remember, Lady Blue is all about Jamie Rose and her peace. Yeah. You know what we're talking about. Episode three from season two is called The Interview. The staff has an interview with a TV news reporter regarding their true feelings about Bill. And we actually have a name playing that TV reporter. Playing Leanne Cook is Gail Edwards. You might remember her as Vicki Larson on Full House, or she was on It's a Living. Dot Higgins, 120 episodes. And she was on an episode of New Love American Style. You're welcome. It's a good show. It's okay. It's tolerable. We're moving on. I didn't want the G-Man to come in here and argue the merits of New Love American Style. So that'll take us to episode four, Company Inc. The station is sold to Bill's former boss, who had fired him for sleeping with his wife. Guessing this is the new owner of the station, but a big name, playing Hayden Stone, the legendary Martin Landau. Oh. Next up in episodes five and six, it's a two-part episode. The first part is called JoJo's Problem Part One. For some reason, JoJo is lashing out at everyone, and her future with Bill may have something to do with it. And there's no guess of note in that episode. And we'll move on to part two of JoJo's Problem. JoJo's frustration increases when everyone learns about her problem. And again, no names of note there. So moving on swiftly to episode seven in season two. Miss WBFL. JoJo plans to boycott the Miss WBFL beauty contest. I've been to Buffalo. There's no beautiful women there. Oh, sorry, Buffalo. Love you. I'm never allowed at Buffalo again, am I? No. Especially not after the things we've said about Josh Allen on this podcast. Good night, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> 
and he deserves every last one of them. Josh Allen, great quarterback, rubbish human being. Uh, no, I'd say rubbish quarterback, rubbish human being. Would you agree with me, Greg? Oh, yes. And they love him so much in Buffalo, and I mentioned this to Chico and Greg last week after my trip to Buffalo. I went to a huge sports card shop. And it wasn't all sports cards. It was 40,000 feet, but like the back quarter was sports cards. The front three quarters was basically Buffalo sports stuff. And not kidding, they had Josh Allen everything. Josh Allen bobbleheads, Josh Allen jerseys, Josh Allen college jerseys. You know, if you wanted anything Josh Allen, that was the place to go. And I'm not just talking like one or two bobbleheads. They must have had probably about 100 to 150 of them set up in a display. Not taking my 40 bucks for a Josh Allen bobblehead, unless I'm going to use it for target practice. Oh, wow. Episode 8 is called The Big Freeze. Wendy plans a segment about the Nuclear Freeze Initiative. Oh, this is timely in 1984. Beautiful. I have another capsule. Despite strenuous objections from Bill, Carl, and JoJo, Wendy prepares an hour-long segment covering the Nuclear Freeze Initiative, and Nudell encourages her to use her feminine wiles to make the planned segment come to fruition. Seems like a bit of a hot-button topic in 1984, if you ask me. There's no guess in that episode, so we'll move on to episode 9, which is called The Girl on the Jetty. During a cold winter, Carl's wife kicks him out for bringing his work problems home with him. Compassionate Jojo consoles him by fixing him a fancy home-cooked meal. Romantic sparks fly, then Bill finds out. I think we might need an uh-oh there. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. We do have a name on this episode. The... Credit is unknown, but her name is Megan Gallagher, and she will come up again this week. But she was in 45 episodes of Millennium, two episodes of Deep Space Nine, and she played the Holyoke Cotty on National Lampoon's Van Wilder, if you remember that far back. Episode 10 is called Buffalo Bill vs. the Kremlin. Oh my gosh, more hot-button issues in 1984. During an on-air chat with computer gurus, Bill callously accuses his guests of smuggling American computer technology into communist countries. During a commercial break, they threaten Bill and his paranoia skyrockets. Yeah, this is a bit of a hot-button topic in 1984. Computers and Russia. Not a great combination, if you ask me. Even though we must thank uh, Alexei Pajitnov for creating Tetris around this time. Well, he had to have a computer, and he was Russian, so let's make one plus one equal two. That was a really good movie on Apple TV+. Plus. That's a good point. They did have a Tetris movie. I don't have Apple+, Plus, but I might have to get that just to see that. Moving on to episode 11, titled A Hero. Carlson gets a job at WBFL since he idolizes Bill. Aww. An alternate capsule here. Carl is powerless to deal with his rebellious teenage son who idolizes Bill. So Junior gets a job at WBFL. Meanwhile, Bill publicly derides a local businessman for selling defective products, and the vendor shows up seeking revenge. And we have at least one name in this episode playing Catherine Zawicki Shub, who I'm going to assume is Carl's wife or ex wife or 
some relation to Carl, Susan Rattan, L.A. Law. That's all we need to say. Yes, I'm going to put Diana Moldar falling down the elevator shaft right here. You're welcome. I really don't want to talk about it. See, I don't even need prompting anymore. I know where these things go. But playing Junior, somebody we talked about on the Open All Night episode, Sam Whipple. We did talk about him in the Open All Night episode. I remember that. So again, another person maybe in the J. Tarsus, Tom Pesett Rolodex. All right, we're almost there, everybody. Episode 12 is entitled The Tap Dancer. Bill wants to book the Alexandria Brothers tap dancers on the show, but two of them have died. Lone survivor Tom appears on the show, tap dances, and expires during his big finish. Bill is upset enough to rant about the evils of television. He expired during his big finish, huh? They took out all the Alexandria Brothers. (laughs) That's dark. That is really dark. You're absolutely right about that. No names a note there, so we're going to get to the second to last episode. Have yourself a very degrading Christmas. Well, it's no Bevo home for the holidays. <laughs> really? We saw part of that for the first time tonight, and gosh, if Longhorn Network reruns that this holiday season, we're going to cover it. Well, the thing is, this is going to be the last holiday season. It's going to be covered ever because Longhorn Network is going bye-bye. Huh? Longhorn Network is going bye-bye. When Texas moves to the SEC next year, the Longhorn Network is going to fold because oh. it makes no sense for ESPN to have a network devoted to a team from the SEC when they already have the SEC network. Yeah, tons of redundancy. We should note that this episode aired March 22nd of 1984, so nowhere near Christmas. And actually, I wonder if this was originally recorded to air on Christmas, but remember, I mentioned that the second season didn't start till December. So the math actually works out, you know, pushed three months ahead of Christmas. So maybe season two of Buffalo Bill was supposed to premiere in September of 1983? Who knows? Anyhow, Bill refuses to wear a Santa Claus outfit on the Christmas Day segment of his show until the Brazilian actress who is guesting changes his mind by offering him a one-night stand if he wears it. Is this Bill's lucky day? I don't know. Is it going to be Bill's lucky day getting a Brazilian movie star? (laughs) Susan Rutan appears as Carl's wife in this episode. Playing... The Brazilian actress, a beautiful woman, if you don't mind me saying so myself, named Martine Beswick. She was in Thunderball and from Russia with Love. So she's, I don't know if necessarily a Bond girl, but she was a Bond girl. But also, it pains me to say this a little bit. She played Xavier Hollander in The Happy Hooker Goes to Hollywood. We've talked about the happy hooker goes to Hollywood in the past. I know we have because that's why I took a breath and said, I don't want to talk about this, but you know what? For the sake of completeness, we've got to talk about the happy hooker goes to Hollywood. 
And also, we did talk about her previously because she was on one episode of The Powers of Matthew Star. Most likely not the episode where I was, like, loaded with antibiotics. And it says Swords and Quests. Now, I think the episode I saw was actually one episode after that, episode 22. So, I missed her by a week. I missed the happy hooker goes to Hollywood by a week. Oh, darn. And that's going to take us to the final episode. Church of the Poisoned Mind. After injuring his hand during an on-air martial arts stunt, Bill accuses his next guest, a Roman Catholic priest who is raising funds for a youth center of sexual misconduct, and the audience sees Bill's true colors. Not touching this one with a forklift. And based on that, I'm guessing you guys aren't either. Brad Maul was in this episode. Wasn't he in Match Game for a couple of weeks? I know he was on five episodes of something called Romance Theater. He was indeed on a week of Match Game, but it was in 1991. Well, that's Buffalo Bill. And to say the least, it did get some acclaim. The series did get 11 Emmy Award nominations, including two for Outstanding Comedy Series. Joanna Cassidy also won a Golden Globe Award in 1984. And actually, going back to TV Guide, they ranked Bill Bittinger number 42 on its 50 greatest TV characters of all time. Not bad for a show that lasted one year. One of the top 50 characters of all time. And actually, Brandon Tartikoff, legendary NBC executive, wrote in his memoirs that his biggest professional regret was canceling the show. I can understand that, especially given what was coming down the road in fall of 1984. Maybe it's just one of those cases of, you know, too much good stuff coming down the line. I mean, we had at that point the Mr. Black show. That was the big show premiering in fall of 84. But also you had Family Ties. You had Night Court, which had respectable ratings. You had Cheers. And we talked about Cheers' struggles the first couple of seasons. So maybe it was just a numbers game where, you know, unfortunately, they said, you know, Buffalo Bill's got to go. It's a great show, but it's just not going to fit in this super lineup we're going to have in 1984. I don't have many weeks worth of ratings. I, I do have a few for the second season, so we can at least take a look to see where there might have been problems. I do have the ratings for Christmas of 1983, and really, it's not bad. Out of 67 shows, it ranked right in the middle at 34th, ahead of such big names as That's Incredible, Silver Spoons, Different Strokes, Fantasy Island, St. Elsewhere, Knight Rider, T.J. Hooker, Ripley's Believe It or Not. How was that, Greg? Pretty good. Thank you. Manimal. Rawr! Three's Company. Whiz Kids. So it did better than, again, half the shows. If we look at the first week of January, eh, maybe it's the holidays. I don't know. 46th out of 67. So that's... The bottom third. 
not great, but still, again, better than different strokes. Silver Spoons, Ripley's Believe It or Not, We Got It Made, St. Elsewhere, Mama's Family, Wiz Kids. And then another week later, so this is the second full week of January, 57th out of 71 shows. So I think we're seeing the tumble now. Yes, it's a good show, but nobody's watching it. Or not necessarily nobody's watching it, but not enough eyes are watching it, if that makes any sense. And just, again, taking a look real fast at uh, other weeks in 1984, I'm seeing it consistently in the 40s and even low 50s. And, yeah, maybe when you're going up against 60, 70 shows, maybe getting a renewal is, well, not necessarily a guarantee, but maybe it might be a little challenging. First week of February, 57th out of 65 shows. So you're, like, right near the bottom 10% there, bottom 15% for sure. Not good. Uh, 46th out of 59 shows, so, again, bottom quarter. Not good. And uh looks like this is the second full week of February. 43rd out of 49 shows. Yeah, people just weren't watching it for whatever reason. So, yeah, the critics loved it. People just didn't watch. And if we take a look at the schedule, maybe we can find out where the problems arose. Why weren't people watching this? Was there some competition on another network that people absolutely had to see. And for its premiere, I would say the answer is no. It aired on Wednesday nights at 9.30. This is a pretty stacked lineup. You had real people at 8 to start the night, and this would have been real people's second to last season. And then you had Facts of Life, Buffalo Bill at 9.30, and then the last season of Quincy at 10. Buffalo Bill went up against the second half hour of Tales of the Gold Monkey. So not really a big competition there from ABC. CBS looks like they aired a TV movie that night. Now, when it came back for the second season, this is a little tougher. In season two, it aired on Thursday nights. Now I think I'm seeing why it may have been canceled. Thursday nights. Mr. Black is coming to Thursday nights in fall of 1984. Wonder if this would have survived if it was on a different night, just saying. It aired at 9.30 p.m. on Thursday nights after Cheers, before Hill Street Blues. Pretty plus time slot, if you ask me. Especially since Cheers is on the rise and Hill Street Blues is a known commodity at this point. On ABC, it went up against masquerade the first half hour of a one and a half hour installment of masquerade this might have heard it though on cbs the second half hour of simon and simon but there is a positive side to this if you would like to catch buffalo bill it was released on dvd might need a little luck finding it because from what i could see it was released in 2005 so it might be hard to find, especially since I'm guessing it's been out of circulation for probably 17 years at this point. I, I don't see a ton of audiences clamoring for Buffalo Bill on DVD. Any final thoughts, gentlemen? Some of the episodes 
can be uh, streamed for free on YouTube. I've actually watched a few of those episodes, and the writing was pretty clever. The acting was top-notch, and it was altogether a really good show with a lot of talent in front of and behind the cameras. Problem is, as we've seen many a times before, talent does not translate into ratings. You know, I wonder if this aired a year later or a year earlier, if possibly this would have survived longer. And also the same with Mr. Smith. Because, again, as we talked about last week, Mr. Smith, I think, was a perfectly enjoyable show. Very funny at times. Just the competition it went up against was killer. This show, brilliantly written, competition maybe not as bad as Mr. Smith's, but still it was short run, but really it deserved a longer life. The critics loved it. Maybe it's one of those things like it's the best show that nobody's watching, which I think is what people said about Cheers back in like 1982, 83. It's the best show you're not watching. And then a couple years later, people started watching it, and it's a classic. And again, Brandon Tartikoff, legendary genius at NBC, admitted that one of the worst decisions he made was canceling Buffalo Bill. Such is life, unfortunately. And Buffalo Bill may have been a favorite among the critics, wasn't necessarily a favorite among TV viewers, and it was a favorite of... Brandon Tartikoff's, but he has regrets. And for those reasons, sadly, Buffalo Bill is just a thing on TV. That'll be it for this episode of It Was a Thing on TV. But please always remember, you can go to our website at itwasathingontv.com where you can listen to the 412 previous episodes. We have everything there. Minisodes, live shows, extended versions. We have the revisited episodes. We have a bunch of stuff there. And also remember, we're on all social media, including Instagram, Threads, and Mastodon at It Was The Thing on TV, except for Facebook, where we're at It Was The Thing on TV podcast. But please do not go to Twitter, X, whatever it's being called this week, because once they start charging money, we're gone. I will literally pull the plug as soon as they say, if you want to stay here, pay $8. Nuh-uh, not doing it. But also, please remember to subscribe to the podcast wherever fine podcasts can be streamed at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn Radio, iHeartRadio, Audible, Spotify, anywhere that you can get quality podcasts. And also, don't forget, we're on YouTube where you can like and subscribe to our channel. And don't forget to hit the notification bell to stay informed of all future uploads on the channel, including what's coming up next time on the podcast. And next time, we're going to continue talking about Dabney Coleman. We're going to move ahead in the future by about three, four years. And I don't want to shock anybody, especially after talking about Dabney Coleman in Buffalo Bill, but he plays another sort of irritable character in this next episode. Not saying typecasting, but again, another show that critics loved. Did audiences feel the same way? Well, I guess we'll have to stick around till Thursday to find out about that. But before we go, I want to give everybody a little reminder. Today is the 25th of September. Tomorrow, September 26th, if you watch 
person, place, or thing, I, Mike, will be a super fan on that episode. And they don't specifically say the podcast in the episode. It's in the behind the scenes stuff, but there's a little bit of promotion for the podcast there. So if you want to see what I look like, you know, if you haven't seen what I look like on social media or whatnot, go watch person place your thing on uh, tomorrow on the, the 26th. Now we're going to close up the episode. Thank you as always for listening. Come on back Thursday for that episode. As we continue Dabney Colmania. Wow. I'm Dabney Coleman. I'm all over me. Right on. Watch me on Mary Tyler Moore. Hi, Mary. That girl. Hi. Holy on am I glad to see you. The fugitive. A man named Kimball. He's wanted for murdering his wife. Cannon. Want a piece of club sandwich? No, no thanks. Naked City. I won't ask somebody a question. I won't ask you a question. Watch me on me, me TV. You got it. Memorable entertainment television.